You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into another edition of the Ops and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And today is your Wednesday, which means it is Mailbag Wednesday. You dictate the show. You drive the show. You've submitted your questions to Eric uh, on Twitter, on DuckTerritory.com, whatever other means of communication you have with him. Uh, but you've sent the questions to Eric. He's compiled them. And real quick, before we jump in, Eric, I just want to remind everybody, uh, we are offering a promotion on DuckTerritory.com. One dollar. That's all it takes. One dollar. Gets you into the front door for your first month of VIP access. And then after that one month is up, uh, you go back to our regular pr- uh, price uh, plan, which is $9.95 a month. That's Basically one lunch that you don't take during the work day, uh, work week. That's one, that's two Starbucks that you, you don't make during the week. Once, once a month. Uh, very easy to find that $10. Uh, and you get inside scoop on the ducks. You get expert analysis and opinion. You get to read all the content at duckterritory.com, but also across the 24-7 sports network. Uh, you get exclusive recruiting coverage and, uh, the best, Addition to all of this, I think, is now the CBS All Access uh, streaming platform. You get that for free. That's a $99.99 value per year. Uh, that comes for free once your subscription uh, kicks into regular pricing. So after that first month uh, is up you get and you get charged $9.95, you also get CBS All Access, which comes with 10,000 shows, live TV, movies, Original content uh, free with your membership to DuckTerritory.com. So, highly encourage you guys to do that. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's get to your questions. Yeah, I'm excited to do this, Matt. I think it's been, I was looking at the podcast, I think it's been like a month. And that's my fault because I was on vacation. I'll take full responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like a month since we've done this, and it was it was really fun, I must say, uh, putting out the tweet asking people to send in questions and then just the outpouring of... Uh, of questions and, and thoughts and what people kind of want to know about. And there was a ton of trends and, and we only lim- we limited it to eight questions like we do every week, but uh, there were over 20 this week and a lot of them had to do with where we're starting um, in the first segment of the show here where we're talking about a couple of possible additions Oregon could make or will have to make um, in the coming months. And first, let's start with the question from at MVH Genetics. And we got a lot of questions circulating around this, but uh, this is a Jamie Newman, the Wake Forest quarterback, who's been linked to Oregon as a possible grad transfer. This is a question regarding him. Why would we want the Wake Forest transfer? Tyler, this is Tyler Shuck, is good and young. Butterfield is top three quarterback in the country and Mellon to boot. Why disrupt the QB room and potentially play with the recruit or a player leaving Oregon for a one-year guy? FYI, I hated Dakota Prukup and Vernon Adams and all the transfer guys ever. And he said that last part with an exclamation point, so he was really – Really not loving the uh, the past grad transfer additions. Um, we should, I mean, and if we're just talking about grad transfers in general, I mean, we should mention Vernon Adams that season. If he doesn't have an injury here, I think he broke his finger. Um, we're talking about that 2015 season a lot, a lot different. When he was healthy, Oregon was tremendous that year, and um, and so I, I I think I would for those who are like, oh, grad transfers don't work out. I think that's not really been proven correct. And you look at Oklahoma. 
um, with it hasn't all been grad transfers, but just with the last three guys they've had there with Mayfield and uh, uh, and Kyler Murray, and then this year with with Jalen Hurt, uh, that's that's three straight quarterbacks that have worked out very very well at Oklahoma. So it can work. Um, and now I don't disagree entirely with the premise uh, of this question though of like. Tyler Shuck, I, I'm really high. I've been on the Tyler Shuck bandwagon. I've been on the Tyler Shuck train basically since spring ball when I thought he took a big step this offseason. I thought he was really, really performed well when we got to watch extensive practices in the spring, and then I thought he performed really well in the spring game. So um, I'm fully on board of let's make Shuck the guy, but if you're playing devil's advocate here, Matt, and I'll play this for a second, and, I'll, and then I'll let you kind of jump in, but you would hate to have a scenario here where let's say Shuck gets injured or something happens with him and he misses an extended period of time and you have to turn to either a true freshman quarterback in Jay Butterfield or Robbie Ashford or a redshirt freshman in Kale Millen who was basically injured all year and hasn't really had much time to, to develop either. I just think, to me, if you can find a way to improve that de- that depth there and find something that's proven... Um, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe we should also say this, maybe it's not a bad thing for Tyler Shuck to have to go out and win the job because, I, I mean, and maybe I'm overstating kind of, you know, how much of a stranglehold he has on the job already, but like, I feel pretty confident in saying that if the roster is what it is right now in, you know, in seven months when they, when they're looking to start the season, that Tyler Shuck would be the quarterback. Maybe it's not a bad thing that he has to go through some sort of quarterback position battle with somebody like a Jamie Newman or another grad transfer or, or something like that just to kind of earn the job and solidify himself and, and build his confidence that way. But um, I, I see it both ways. I, I, I don't think you want to ruin the confidence of Tyler Shuck and maybe, uh, you know, obviously delay his his time as Oregon starter or worst case scenario, he gets up and transfers if he loses the job. Um, but I also think, like, you also don't want to be in a spot here where Tyler Shuck gets hurt at some point over the course of the season, and then a year where there's a lot of promise, the defense is really talented, there's some good running backs in the team, I think the offensive line will be good. Um, it, all that kind of gets thrown out the window because you have to rely upon a true freshman quarterback, like what, like what we saw not that long ago with Braxton Burmeister having to step in. Right. I, I think you have to ask yourself, okay, are we one player away from getting to the college football playoff if you're Mario Cristobal? And does does the difference in Tyler Shuck and Jamie Newman equate to Oregon playing in the Holiday Bowl in 2020 or playing in the college football playoff? Then, yeah, you absolutely have to do that. And I think that's, that's what you're going to be debating on is does Jamie Newman – and, and if he wins the job, does that elevate Oregon to a college football playoff? Because you have to look at it in this way. USC is down. Washington is down. Stanford is down. The powers in the Pac-12 that are traditional powers, they're all down except for Oregon. And that's not going to be the case forever. Eventually those schools will will figure things out. And they will get back. Now, Washington was, you know, they were conference champions last year. And, you know, they've had a one-year dip. They've uh, lost to, um, you know, they, they lost their head coach. They've lost guys on both sides of the football. And, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if next year they win eight, eight or nine games. It wouldn't surprise me either if they win the conference because they're still a good team. They still have talented players on that roster. <laughs> sure. And, and you don't want to miss the window. Where 
you can come out and you can win a conference championship for a second straight year and you can go out and get to the college football playoff and continue to elevate the trajectory of this program. And does Jamie Newman do that? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I personally think Tyler Shuck is good enough to get you there, but if Cristobal feels like there's, there is a difference between Newman and Shuck and Shuck is okay with it, then you, yeah, you bring him in and you see what, you see what happens. Now, Jamie Newman is not going to come to Oregon, uh, with the idea that he's going to be a backup. He's going to want to know that it's a true competition. And maybe we see something that happened like at Washington State where this past season, you know, they brought in a grad transfer from Eastern Washington, one of the best FCS quarterbacks in the, in, uh, at that level the last couple of seasons. And Anthony Gordon beat him out. A guy that was in the system, uh, beat him out and he had to sit and he came out afterwards like, yeah, that was not how I anticipated this going. I did not come to Washington State to sit and I did and kudos to Anthony Gordon for beating me out, but I'm, he was not happy about that. Um, but that's the debate that you have to make if you're Mario Cristobal. Personally, I think Tyler Shuck is good enough to be the guy. I think Jay Butterfield is going to push him. Um, and if, but you bring up a good point. What happens if Shuck gets hurt? Now all of a sudden, uh, you are placed in a position where your backup is a true freshman, uh, a redshirt freshman, or a true freshman. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's the that's the potential concern there, and and you would I think you would hate to be in a spot here where you have all of this momentum of the season and something happens to your quarterback, and I I do think Chuck is I think we're on the same page here. I I, I don't think Oregon is in a bad spot, and actually the next question talks about it, so I'll, I'll I'll wrap up that and move on to that in a second here. But I just think you'd hate to be in a situation where something happens to Chuck. And you are in a spot where you're in the middle of conference play and he's out for maybe two to four, or maybe he's out for the season and Jay Butterfield comes in and you maybe struggle with a new, with a freshman quarterback and maybe he can't handle it and then his confidence is shaken. I mean, I don't think Braxton Burmeister's confidence ever, I don't think he ever really recovered from that and we'll see what happens with him at, at Virginia Tech where he transferred. But, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's a tough spot to put these true freshmen in, you know, throw them into those, Situations and, and maybe it's not a bad thing to have a, a safety valve. And, and you're right that Newman doesn't want to come out here and become a backup quarterback. That's a disaster for him. Um, it's a disaster for I think the reason he wants to come to a school is is to potentially develop himself as an NFL player. And if he comes out and gets beaten out by a player who's three years younger than him, I think that reflects really poorly on him. So it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. Second question though um, from at Jackson Carroll 14: Chances we make the college football playoff with a rookie quarterback? And I think. We both kind of touched on this here, Matt. Um, do, do, do you think, like, I mean, I think we're, we're both, we both have said it. We're both high on Tyler Shuck. We think he's got tremendous upside. I mean, he's got the physical tools. He's big. He's strong. Sounds like the players love him. I mean, every, every t- teammate we hear talk about him raves about who he is as a player and as a person. Um, do you think that a Tyler Shuck led offense, or let's just say any of these freshman quarterbacks, if maybe Jay Butterfield does beat him out, do you think any of them are capable of leading Oregon to a college football playoff berth, or does that feel like a lot to ask in, in 2020? I think so, but that's because the defense is going to be so good. Yeah. Like, there's going to be the idea that this is a group defensively that it was already pretty elite this season. I think it's going to get even better next year. And even with the departure of Troy Dye from the middle of the defense. Now, if Jordan Scott, Thomas Graham, Diamond Lenore, 
Austin Folio, if any of those four, all four of those leave, then yeah, my perspective of the defense changes. But right now, you know, signs are pointing that they're all coming back and, um, I, I'm going to take that as where it's at right now, that they're all back with the team. Um, I think, I think next year's defense could be really special and the offense still has to be good. They still have to be efficient, but instead of having to go out and have, you know, seven or eight games this season because the defense isn't there. It's, it's the inverse. It's, it's life is upside down right now for Oregon football fan because going into 2020, you know, your defense is going to be special and you know, and you feel that the 2020 defense, they can win you eight or nine games by themselves and they'll just need the, the offense to, you know, to play at a high level, you know, at, at, at optimum, optimal levels three or four times during the year because the defense can carry you. So yeah, I think, a, I think a rookie quarterback at Oregon could do it. It's just, it helps that they have such a good, a good defense. Yeah. And I think the thing that's, that it sets it up for with the rookie quarterback thing is that whoever it is, and if Oregon is going to make a college football playoff berth next year, and remember we're talking huge picture here with a lot of things that have to happen. So it's, this is all like super hypothetical, but they need to be ready like right away. And I talked about this, I think on our post game podcast down at the Rose Bowl of, they need to be ready when they play Ohio State because if that's a game where they're not like they could probably lose that game and still work their way into the college football playoff discussion if they if they were to win out in the Pac-12. I mean they almost got there this year right. um, with two losses, but if they get just blasted and they lose really really bad to Ohio State, um, then I think that potentially puts you in a spot where there's not going to be a ton of. Uh, it's, it's going to be hard to get that momentum back because I think part of what helped Oregon, you know, in that college football discussion this year was that, that Auburn game. I think everybody deep down knew Oregon was Oregon played with Auburn. They were very capable of winning that game. In fact, I think if you spoke to most people and they were objective about it, they said Oregon was probably the better team. And it was just Oregon kind of ran out of gas and, and Auburn made some really good plays down the stretch to win. But if Oregon goes and they play a home game against Ohio State and that freshman quarterback, whoever it is, if it is Shock or Butterfield or whatever. And, and they're just, they lay an egg and they play really poorly and Oregon loses at home like 49 to 14 or something like that. I think right. that totally changes the, the trajectory of the season. It makes things really tough to get back into that discussion. But, um, like we said earlier in the podcast, I, I think Oregon's going to have by far the best team in the Pac 12 next year again. Uh, I mean, I think, and I actually think if the quarterback position plays out the way, you know, if, if it is a, a strong suitor and it, and it develops properly, I think Oregon could be much, I think they could be the best team in the conference by a lot. You know, I think really this year you look at the conference, Utah was the only team to me, and I guess Washington is in that same conversation that was really kind of Oregon's equal. Utah's taking a huge step back. You look at what Washington's losing, they're losing their quarterback, they're losing their running back, they're losing a lot of their top defensive players. You could see them take a big step back, losing their head coach. Um, you could take, see them take a big step back. I really think that the, the door, and you said it earlier, and I totally agree, the door is wide open for Oregon to dominate the conference again. But they are going to have to uh, get that quarterback situation figured out quickly. All right. Yeah, that's the one where if the quarterback spot gets figured out and they come out, look, they don't have to beat Ohio State. If no, they I go, don't think so. if they go eleven and one in the regular season and and win their conference championship game and they don't get blown out by Ohio State, they're going to be in the playoffs. Yes. It, it yes. That doesn't, you know, they will be there. But they they can't slip up and they can't get blown out too. If they get blown out in that game and it's not close, 
then that opens the door of, well, they just weren't ready and they're not, you know, they're not going to be ready for the big, for the biggest stage of, of the college football playoff. And the defense is going to have to carry the load. But if, if, if the offense can come out and they are clicking and they're playing pretty well early on, things could get really interesting and real fun in 2020, uh, if they can compete with Ohio State, let alone win. Yeah, I mean, the inverse is Oregon beats Ohio State, and it's a shocking upset, because I do think even though they're going to be at home in that game, Ohio State will be probably at least a seven-point favorite or something like that. If Oregon can come out and shock the country and win that game, that then sets things up for a really interesting season where they have quite a bit of wiggle room, and they might be able to lose a game here in Pac-12 play against a team that maybe isn't as good as Ohio State. So, I mean, I think that game is like, it's crazy to talk about it, and I think we we even, this is sort of the, the conversation preseason issue with that Auburn game, but... Having a big non-conference game like that, even though I think it kind of bit Oregon this year in terms of that they were playing North Dakota State or somebody this year in place of Auburn and they win that game, they probably make the playoff. But having that game there is such a big barometer and a big proving ground. And, and again, I think if they can come out and compete, maybe win that game, uh, it totally sort of changes the outlook for the season. Just like if they come out and get their, their butts kicked pretty good, then it totally changes it too. So I, I think that game is really pivotal for the whole season, even though it's played in September. All right, third question from at Josh Harden underscore four. Can each of you give your ideal candidate for the OC job and why? Matt, I will let you start this one, and then I will respond after. Hmm. I would go Jed Fish. I, I think when he's got NFL experience, uh, he was at Michigan when they were pretty good under Harbaugh. Um, he's worked under... Um, McVeigh at the LA Rams right now. Um, he seems to have a lot of positional utility value. He's coached everywhere, basically. Um, and I, I like those types of coaches, guys that, and the, at, that are at coordinators is that they've got, they've got their specialty. Um, but they've got experience coaching everything because then they can relate to every position on the group. You know, and game planning and all of that. I, I think he would also have, uh, the understanding of, look, you've got a guy that's got NFL experience and, you know, Crystal Ball has talked at length in the previous interviews in the offseason about how they model stuff after the NFL and, you know, McVeigh and the Rams are one of the most exciting offenses in, in the NFL right now. And so I think that would be, uh, beneficial and, you know, he's also a guy that's coached in, uh, all parts of the country. So he's going to be very familiar with the recruiting aspect of that as well. That was going to be my pick too. Um, and for a lot of the reasons you said that, I, I like when you have somebody who has a variety of experience. And I mean, you know, Jeff, you look at his, what he's done in his career and he's coached at basically every level, high school, college, uh, I've got the New Jersey Red Dogs, uh, which is a AFL football team. He's coached at that level. He's coached in the NFL um, on and off as well. I've been an offensive coordinator at, at the Jaguars in 13-14, uh, quarterbacks coach in Seattle in 2010, uh, wide receivers coach for the Broncos in 2008, um, just a, a variety of, of skill sets, and I think that is really impressive. In the fact, he's only 43 years old, and yet he's got – like I said, just a ton of ample experience. He was even the interim head coach at UCLA um, before they brought in uh, Chip Kelly. Uh, they went one and one. He won. A, he, I guess he lost the bowl game, but 
he, he's somebody with a ton of experience. And I think that would be attractive. I also think, and I don't know if this is realistic at this point, but I know when, when they brought up Rod Jasinski's name as somebody that might be a possibility, that clicked to me just in terms of he's somebody that Mario uh, is familiar with. They played on the same teams uh, at Miami back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, he's been an offensive coordinator. He's actually been a head coach for the Cleveland Browns, although that's not something I think you really want to like <laughs> set your hat on is, is, is being working in that organization, just considering what, what they've done. But I think the thing there is I look at it, he doesn't really have a lot of collegiate assistant coaching experience. Last time he coached at the college level was in 2003 at Miami as the offensive coordinator. Since then, he's been jumping around in the NFL. Um, you kind of like it when somebody has a little bit more experience recently collegiately, especially as a recruiter. Um, it's going to be interesting, though, because I'm sure, Matt, you're in agreement with this. Like, these, these are some of the top the hot names right now, but there are probably going to be a bunch of names we hear pop up in the next yeah. couple of weeks that we aren't even on our radar. Well, I, so, I mean, right? I, I think Kellen Moore yeah, from the sure. Dallas Cowboys would be really intriguing. Now, I know Washington's going after him hard to have him return to his home state and work under Jimmy Lake, but... You know, that's a guy that, that elevated the, the Cowboys offense to one of the best offenses in, in the NFL this season. He's young, uh, he, he's got history and coaching, you know, both levels and, and I, it, it, he would be an, an intriguing name as well. And I also believe that there's going to be some candidates that either come on as analysts or GAs or, you know, maybe an assistant coach that, are just going to be out of, you know, completely left field. Like, whoa, totally. where did this guy come from? You know, and I, the, the Kellen Moore-Andy Avalos connection would be kind of interesting where you had two guys who I think played a little bit together at right. Boise State, come, uh, one leading the Oregon offense, one leading the Oregon defense. That would be wild. And actually, Kellen Moore, I was I was looking up to see how old he was. He's only 31 years old, and he was yeah. just the offensive coordinator in the NFL for the last three years, so or two years, I should say. So um, that's... I mean that's a that's a young exciting guy and if you could get him for even if it's a couple of years before he maybe turns and looks back at the NFL or, or becomes a collegiate or NFL head coach, um, that would be a, a very very interesting hire as well. But yeah, you're right. I, I, I and for those listening, like these are names that we like right now. But like, I don't don't be at all surprised if names pop up that we're not, that aren't really even on our, on anyone's radar in the next couple of weeks. Like Matt said, I, I wouldn't be surprised. To suddenly we're seeing, I mean, cause there's, there's still a bunch of turnover going on in the NFL with head coaches, coaching moves, people moving, you know, coaches moving from one job to another, building their assistant staffs. Same thing going on collegiately. So I just think there's going to be potential for a lot of moving parts here in the coming weeks and months. So, um, next question. Well, I'm kind of along the same lines here, but from at Matt, there's a bunch of numbers here at Matt 34310182. Let's just say from Matt. From Matt, but not this. Not Matt. me. Okay. That might be his like cell phone number. I don't know. Maybe That's my burner social. account. Sorry. Just, well, it's definitely it's definitely got a lot of numbers, um, which which always is kind of interesting. Uh, it, it's the question. It's no secret that fans felt that the offense didn't click schematically with Arroyo as OC due to his ability to make to be effectively calling plays. I personally feel that CMC's vision of the pistol and power run can be more effective with the proper play caller in place. Your thoughts on this? Do we know um, if Mario Cristobal handcuffed? Arroyo on certain play calls. I, I, we do know that. And like, to me, I'm actually like, I'd actually rather just scrap the pistol altogether. If, if I'm being totally honest and, and, and move forward. Um, I don't know if that's what they're going to do. We should mention Jim Astro, um, was one of the founders of the pistol offense. He's still on staff. Still, we should also mention a potential candidate. You know, if there is an internal candidate for the job, it's, it's, it's probably Jim Astro. Um, 
I personally, though, I'm in, and maybe I'm in the minority. I don't think so. Maybe Matt disagrees, but I, I would I would move away from the pistol. I don't have the problem. I don't have a problem with the pistol, but the pistol in of itself is designed to have the quarterback run the football and be a threat to run the football. And if you don't honor that, the pistol becomes difficult to run because your running back is so far back behind the line of scrimmage. It takes time to get up there and allows the defense to react and and attack. But if you do allow the quarterback to run, like we saw in the Utah game in the Pac-12 championship and then against Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl, yeah. Uh, the run game can be pretty effective, uh, and the quarterback runs can be pretty effective if, if used in the right manner. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily on board with getting rid of the pistol. I just would like to use, uh, the, the, the quarterback a little bit more in the run game. And, but my bigger issue last, you know, I guess now last season, the 2019 season was it just felt like when it was time to run, they were throwing and when it was time to run, they were, when they were when it was time to throw, they were running the football. And when they were throwing the football, it was time to take deep shots, and they weren't taking deep shots. And when it was time to to be safe and conservative with your passing, they were taking deep shots. It just felt like the flow of the offense never really clicked, you know, from game to game. You know, there were certainly moments throughout each game where things were going well, and there were certain there were certain games that the offense was really humming. Um, but there were there were definitely parts during the season where it felt like things were fractured for a moment or two and they struggled to do stuff. I mean, the offensive players themselves said, you know, early on the offensive line said they were doing a horrible job blocking the football. And Arroyo came out and said that he, you know, after the Auburn game that he, he was not as aggressive as he needed to be. And, and then after the Washington game, Cristobal came out and said that he was being really boneheaded and, and forcing some plays that weren't working. And it was, it was Mario, uh, it was Mario listening to Marcus Arroyo, uh, and Arroyo's, you know, adjustments that helped them come from behind in the second half to beat the Huskies at, at Washington. So I don't necessarily think Arroyo was a terrible play caller. We don't know how much, uh, overriding happened between what Arroyo wanted to call and what Cristobal wanted to see. We don't know, uh, also, you know, I think it's pretty clear now that they were they were protecting Justin Herbert until the very end of the season. And what would have that looked like if if they just treated it, hey, if he gets hurt, he gets hurt. We've got Tyler Shuck behind him. Uh and, and they just ran things like like they like they had been uh the last two games of the season. Maybe things look differently there. And, and I think there's you know, there's gonna need to be some balance that needs to be found uh, found with whoever is the new offensive coordinator. A couple of thoughts here on a couple of different topics, but first, I think with Arroyo, I don't doubt his ability to design plays. I actually thought the play design at times this season, they had some really unique looks that I hadn't really seen a lot. You think about... 100%. Uh, the touchdown to Micah Pittman on fourth down at Washington? Yeah, yeah but that, that play, that, and that was the play design I was going to say. I mean, I love that where they have the receiver come in motion, and then it's just a screen pass right back over to him. The defense is kind of having to readjust. It gives the receiver basically an extra step or two to get to the outside. And we saw that with Jalen Red a couple of times as well. They had a couple of route combinations where the, you know, the tight end was lined up wide. You think about this early in the season, they did this a lot with Jacob Breland and there's, you know, there's a, uh, a pump fake underneath to a screen pass and over the top Breland runs kind of untouched for a touchdown. There was a handful of, and there were a handful of even run plays that were, were, were creative. I, I think my issue with the Arroyo era at Oregon w- was more of situational. If you, if you get into it's, 
third and three, and everybody knows what's coming, and you run, run to play. the left. Yeah, and, you, and it's a it's a it's a power run to the left, and everybody in the stadium knows it's coming, uh, you know, including the opposing defensive coordinator and defense, and it's just stonewalled. That to me was where I ran into issues with the Royal. It was not the play design. I thought there was some really cool stuff they did, and it was not always even. Uh, it was not even always what they did on first and second down. It just felt like when it came to an an, an integral pre- play, and you brought it up earlier, it seems like they just did things that were either too predictable or then they tried to get too cute at times, and it was just it seemed like they had a hard time finding that balance. So it'll that's be where I go back to who was calling plays right. in that yeah. specific situation. Because we've known now, Cristobal has gone on record that he's kind of, he didn't go out and say that he's over roads play calls, but he has come out and said that he wanted certain play calls called that weren't working and it took a, it took Arroyo to turn him, you know, turn his opinion around. And he's gone on record saying that. And so, you know, that's opened the door of, well, who, who has final say on play call? 100%. And I think that's something we're going to learn in the next year here of, oh, okay, maybe this wasn't a Marcus Arroyo thing and maybe this is Mario Cristobal is, is just maybe, maybe has, maybe plays too big of a role in this stuff and doesn't let his coordinators make decisions. Um, I think that's going to be something interesting to follow. And then one last kind of thought here on the pistol in terms of, like, it, obviously it doesn't matter what we think, but I wonder, you look at the two quarterbacks Oregon has kind of targeted since Arroyo has taken this UNLV job, but you've got Robbie Ashford, a dual threat quarterback they signed who's better with his legs than with his arm. And then you have Jamie Newman, uh, the grad transfer who we already t- spoke about a little bit earlier, who is capable of throwing the ball. He's good in numbers throwing the football. I mean, those aren't bad. He gave 26 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. His completion percentage is pretty solid, but is definitely known to be a running quarterback. He had a couple hundred yard running games. I think he ran for about 600 yards this year and, and, and a handful of touchdowns. I just wonder if you look at that and go, Maybe whoever, maybe whoever it is that they bring in as the offensive quarterback, they're doing so with the understanding that they are going to try to run the quarterback a little bit more. And maybe that's another reason why you do bring in a Jamie Newman here is if they're going to be running the quarterback and there's a possibility of injury, you need a couple more quarterbacks in the system. Even though Tyler Shuck, I think Tyler Shuck's actually a pretty good athlete. He's a pretty good runner. You go watch what we've seen from him. I think he's capable of doing that, but he's certainly not his, his strength and maybe that bringing in these guys with the expectation that um, that they will run the football a little bit more and that they want to have more bodies available in case somebody does get injured. I don't know, just thinking off the cuff here, but I, you kind of look at who they've been targeting at quarterback, just the last two guys that I've seen, and I kind of go, those guys are maybe run, more run first, and maybe they're tipping their hand there, or maybe it's just totally coincidental, and those are just some of the top guys that were available. But um, either way, I think that's sort of notable and something to maybe kind of monitor when you're kind of looking at what Oregon is going to be doing offensively going forward. All right, I think that's going to do it for the first half of the show. Let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with the final four questions. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Pramer. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Four questions in, four more questions to go. Let's let's get going, Eric. All right, fifth question from at Bye Bye Rivers. Is Malachi Weiderman a potential option at wide receiver? And he didn't ask this, but there was another question out there as well, Matt. Maybe run down two or three other names. If, if A, is Weiderman a potential option at wide receiver? And then run through two or three other names of 2020 recruits that Oregon is continuing to, to try to target and, and get signed in this class. Yeah, Michael we- Mike Malachi Weiderman is uh, a four-star receiver from Sarasota, Florida, Venice High School. Six foot four, 180 pounds. A guy that just, uh, reminds me a lot of Johnny, Johnny Johnson, or Johnny Wilson, excuse me. Uh, four star receiver that was committed to Oregon out of Calabasas, uh, and then flipped on signing day to Arizona State. Um, Weidman is a very similar receiver, body type wise. Six foot four, you know, 180, 190. Uh, he's highly ranked 25th best receiver in the country, 132nd best player. Uh, in the country, regardless of position, four-star player, 21st best player in the state of Florida. And look, if you can go out and you can find guys from Florida that, that are going to come west to play football, I, I think you're doing something good. Uh, that state produces a ton of guys. Um, he's currently committed to, uh, to Florida State, but he has not signed, and he has come out and said that he's going to visit Auburn, he's going to visit Oregon uh, sometime during the month of January. Now, other guys that Oregon's looking at, I mean, we know about grad transfer Jamie Newman. There's also a grad transfer in Quincy Roach, a defensive end from Temple. Uh, that would make, I think, a lot of sense, especially if Austin Folio leaves. Uh, there's Jason Jones, a defensive tackle, uh, currently committed to um, Alabama. He's a four-star prospect. He's going to come out to Oregon in January, and then... Marcus Henderson, a four-star offensive lineman from uh, the state of Tennessee, he's uncommitted right now. He's one of the, the highest-rated guys left on the board that's not committed, uh, and Oregon's trying to get him out here for an official visit. So those are some of the names. You know, they've, they've offered McKinley Jackson, a four-star D-tackle that played in, in the uh, All-American Bowl down in San Antonio where, Justin, where uh, Noah Sewell was at um, this past weekend. Uh, and, you know, so those are kind of the main names to track right now. Um, I, I think most importantly, you want a receiver. You also need to find a tight end. Yeah. Um, they haven't signed one in this class. They've they've lost two guys in Ryan Bay and Jacob Breland. Uh, they're going to lose another one in Hunter Campmoyer next season. We don't know the status of Cam McCormick. He's supposed to be healthy for spring ball, but look, he hasn't been healthy really his entire career. So can you count on him? for the 2020 season to remain healthy throughout the year. That's that's the whole cold, hard truth. 
the reality of the situation with uh, Cam McCormick. I think he's a very good player, but he just can't stay healthy. Uh, and, and so you've only got limited guys at that tight end position. And with how important those guys were this season and how often they were used in single tight end formations and double tight end formations, uh, I, I think Oregon needs to find another tight end in this class as well. So going out and finding that guy. Now, who that is, that, that's the big question. There's a lot of, not a lot of options out there. Uh, gonna be curious to see where they go. And maybe, maybe Oregon keeps things open from a scholarship standpoint into spring ball and they check the portal to see what guys become available. I think, I don't, I'm not in favor of going out and getting like a Jamie Newman unless you really feel like Newman is just by and far better than Chuck. Uh, but I am all for going out and trying to find a grad transfer at tight end or a grad transfer along the offensive line or the defensive line uh, because those are positions where maybe just a little bit of depth would help you, but you also don't, you know, use up a scholarship for the next three or four years by taking a guy that's, you know, underrated and uh, isn't going to be on par with the caliber of recruit that you're recruiting in the next three or four years. But for one year, they can provide depth. That's where I think grad transfers could really help this team next season. All right, sixth question is also of the recruiting uh, kind. Uh, Oregon is currently ranked 13th in the country recruiting in the 2020 class. At Little Nikki 77 asks, do you see Oregon finishing with a top 10 recruiting class? Matt, have you have you run the numbers? Do you have an idea of what it would take? Yeah, to get well, there? like they're they're really so. Let's just say uh, Dante Manning is it becomes a five star because that's been debated. It's going to be debated uh, with our our rankings committee at twenty four seven Sports. He's going to be in that discussion. Is he going to get it? I don't know, but let, I I did run the numbers and say like, hey, let's just say he becomes the thirtieth five star in this class. There's currently thirty according to twenty four seven Sports composite. Uh, and then let's see uh, if Noah Sewell goes from 20th in the country to 10th, which isn't uh, – it's probably a little aggressive, but I don't think it's out of this world to think that either, um, considering some guys are going to drop, some guys are going to climb. Right then and there, Oregon's at 11, with just those two guys, you know, seeing their, you know, their rankings bump up. But that also doesn't account for, you know, there's going to be some guys that are going to drop because just as much as players move up, there has to be guys that move down. And it's not going to surprise me if a couple guys on this class maybe move down a couple spots. Um, then it then it gets to well, does Oregon sign enough four star guys? Are there enough four star guys uh, in the second recruiting period uh, to get Oregon into the top ten? It's going to be close. I think it's 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 certainly doable. It's certainly probable. But I, I think it's one of those, literally it's 40, you know, 41, 49 probabilities of yes or no, they're going to get in. Uh, it, it, there's so many fluid movements out there from the recruiting world that, that are going to have to happen. Um, it's really tough to project, but they're going to be in that discussion all the way until the very end for sure. It's, it's possible, but I'm not going to say it's definitive. And you have to also look and see what happens at some of the schools that are also kind exactly. of vying for that spot. Like Texas only has 17 commitments right now. Notre Dame has 18. Those schools are probably going to add some some player here or there. Um, you know, so there's going to be movement, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But I'm kind of with Matt in that if they're not 10th, they're going to be I don't know 11th, 12th. They're going to stay kind of in that range. And it's and again, I also think you look at this class and like there it's are a guys, smaller class. It's a smaller class, and there are guys that are like even kind of maybe. I think there are guys that are undervalued. You all watch the tape, like a Jackson the Duke. That kid is a four-star recruit, if you ask me, but he's rated, 
in the three star range, and there are a couple other guys that I, I would feel that way about too. So even if it, people love looking at the final recruiting rankings and stuff, but like don't don't also overlook the fact that there's probably a couple of these guys here who are maybe a little bit undervalued, and they're going to end up at Oregon being better players than than what the star ranking uh, suggests right now. All right, seventh question from at Javante A. Who will be the offensive and defensive impact players we aren't talking about next year? And is there any early updates on uh, enrollees for spring ball? Uh, I think that's an interesting question to have in terms of who the who guys we aren't talking about this year. Um, I guess it kind of, like, like to me, a guy who I think people probably are talking about, but who I still didn't think showed that as much as what he's capable of offensively is Michael Pittman. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I still think he's somebody who... I picked him to lead the team in receiving this last year. He obviously had two significant injuries and, and only played in about half the games. I still think next year he has the upside to be the go-to guy or one of the go-to guys. I think the same can be said about Devin Williams in terms of, like, there's there's a lot of opportunity, I think, at wide receiver um, to make an impact. Uh, I also say some of those guys on the offensive line. Oregon's going to be breaking in four new offensive line starters. Like a Stephen Jones, I wouldn't be shocked at all if he's, I was going to say an all-conference offensive lineman, but Oregon doesn't, is not allowed to have any of those besides <laughs> Penix Sewell. So um, scratch that. But he's going to be at least, I, I think Stephen Jones is going to, maybe that's my just my pick. I think Stephen Jones is going to be a star. I don't know if that's going to be a right guard, left guard. Right tackle. And he redshirted this year as a and he redshirted this year as a very very talented redshirt freshman, uh, or I guess he's a redshirt sophomore now technically because he played as a as a true freshman in eighteen. But um, that would be my pick offensively, and, and I'm kind of joking about it, but it doesn't seem like anyone on the offensive line for Oregon, unless your name's Penny Sewell, gets any All Pac-12 recognition, even though all those guys are raked like in the top ten in their position groups nationally. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think Jones is going to be another one of those guys that kind of carries that next year, and then defensively. I think a guy like Mace Funa, who was kind of quiet down the stretch, is, is a name to watch. But like, I think the big name, and I was thinking about this for a little bit before the show, is like, don't forget about Adrian Jackson. Um, that was a guy who, as a true freshman in '18, people were really, really high on, and he started a couple of games for when players were injured, moved around a little bit between inside and outside linebacker. But his physical tools, I think, are really, really good. And I think don't overlook the fact that. Oregon signs all these big-time elite five-star recruits, you know, on the, at the linebacker spot, and they bring back some talented guys, and they have a couple guys that were redshirting that they're kind of that they're high on. I just wouldn't overlook is, is if Adrian Jackson can regain that explosiveness that made him such a special player as a freshman and such a highly regarded kid coming in into 2018. I think that's a sneaky pick for somebody who on the defensive side, who maybe we're not talking about right now, but who could be a, a real impact guy. I'm gonna. Offensively, I'm with you on Pittman, Devin Williams, Stephen Jones. Um, I, th- I think those are all guys that are going to make names for themselves next season. Um, Alex Forsythe, if I had to name somebody else yeah. uh, along the offensive line, literally can play all five positions. Um, every player that you talked to that was a senior on the team along the offensive line said he's the next star um, of the group. Uh, defensively, I, I'm going to pick a starter, and that's going to be Isaac Slade. I, mm-hmm. I, I think – he has gone so underappreciated in his first two seasons. He started zero games as a redshirt freshman in 2018, played in seven. Uh, and then this year he started 13 games for the Ducks, or 14 games, excuse me. They, they played 14 games. He started in every single game this year for Oregon. Uh, and I think if it wasn't for Troy Dye, 
this was a guy that we would be talking a ton about because he's the quarterback of the defense. He has been the quarterback of the defense this year. It wasn't Die as a senior. The, the Ducks put Slade in that position. Uh, and Die himself has come out and said that he thinks he's going to be the next great linebacker inside for Oregon. So I, I think now that he's kind of the, the guy inside for Oregon at linebacker, I think he's going to have a big year next year. Um, I, I'm with you on Adrian Jackson. Um, I think we, we are going to see a guy in Trevin Mai, I, out of, uh, Bishop Gorman. He redshirted last, this past season, 2019. He's a freak athlete. He's like six foot five, 240 pounds. He ran like a four, five, 40 yard dash or something like that. Uh, uh, at one point when he was in high school. Um, this is an insane player that is going, I think, in a couple of years is going to become a terror off the edge for Oregon football. And we're going to start seeing, seeing that happen next season. Uh, and then I think last but not least, I think I'm going to pick another starter. And I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's kind of cheating, but Brady Brees, like he was the Rose Bowl MVP from a defensive standpoint. What's he going to do with a full year of starting experience next season? I, I don't think you can take him off the floor or off the field, uh, for Oregon in, in 2020. Um, seeing what he did and what he meant for this team the last half of the season, I think he cemented himself as, the, as a starter at a, at a safety position. And it wouldn't surprise me if, look, the guy's just all around the ball. He's not the most talented. He's not the biggest guy, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if he is going to be one of those, five or six players in August that are talked about as a potential defensive player of the year in the Pac-12. I like Matt picking somebody that no one's talking about in Brady Breeze. Uh, <laughs> no, no, not, his name has not been mentioned once. Um, and actually, that, <laughs> I'm joking there because that, that, that is a good that is a good pick in terms of like I, I, that's somebody who like five Who's weeks ago go from like a, a, a part time starter to a superstar. Like, yeah, well, that's what he's I done. He's I going to be a superstar next year in 2020. Well, I went and watched the the Utah uh, highlights again last night, and I, I kind of had forgotten how awesome he was in that game, too. I mean, his last two games of the season, he was tr- just straight up a stud. And actually, I'm going to kind of zig where you zag there a little bit in terms of, like, I also think Verona Tinley's a guy who no one's talking about right now because Brady Breeze, we kind of beat him out for the job. And I don't know what the opportunity level is going to be next year because I do think Breeze and Pickett are starting at safety. But, like, say one of those corners leaves and, and maybe they they find a way to repurpose – some of those roles, like I wouldn't be shocked at all if Verona McKinley, who was really good for, the, I mean, he had four interceptions this season. Um, I wouldn't be shocked at all if, if he's another guy who we're not talking about right now, but who ends up being a big contributor um, in his. I guess it's only his redshirt sophomore season. All right. Yeah, McKinley's a guy that you know he played a ton uh, early on this this past year, um, and then obviously Breeze's emergence kind of pu- pulled him off, but. I mean, yeah, he could play all over the place. He could play safety. He could play nickel. He could play corner. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's another guy that's just going to bring a lot of versatility to to the defense. All right, our final question here. We're gonna we're gonna kind of transition over to a little bit of basketball um, from at Tosh Myers. What do you predict to be Oregon men's basketball lineup rotation come tournament time? I, Matt's been kind of the men's basketball guy. I'm the women's basketball guy this year. Matt, I will let you feel this one, and then I might have some thoughts on the women's side too. Basketball rotation come tournament time. Um, 
Well, Oregon's been healthy for one game. <laughs> so I, I still feel like we're going to see a lot of tinkering with the lineups. Um, I originally, like as of a week ago, was saying I think Will Richardson should start at shooting guard. I am going to negate that comment and instead say he should be coming off the bench because he's kind of that microwave option. Uh, so I'm going to say Oregon starting lineup once they enter the NCAA tournament as a two seed in the West Coast region. Whoa! Uh, they will start Pritchard, Mathis, Duarte, Shakur Justin, and Infale Dante. That, I mean, that makes the most sense. And you think, I mean, I, here's a question for you. Like, is, is Addison Patterson somebody, you, I mean, do you think they're going to cut their lineup a little bit down? Cause he, he didn't play in the last game. I know Walker's also dinged up, but they, it seemed like they have 10 guys that they had been playing, but they only kind of played eight or nine this past weekend. I mean, do you think they kind of trimmed? Well, the yeah. I'll, I'll, I think, I think watching the Colorado game when they had everybody available, that was their first game when all 10 scholarship players were available. Altman played all 10. It felt like, the flow, the rotation, the chemistry was just off. Guys weren't getting the normal amounts of time, and uh, everybody was just out of sync. And then against Utah on Saturday, Altman cut the the rotation down to eight guys. Walker did not play because of back spasms, uh, and then Patterson did not play because of coach's decision. And I think guys played better. Uh, the offense seemed to flow better. You know, the defense was better. So I think. I think yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see Altman. I I think uh, go where uh, this team plays about eight guys, maybe maybe nine if Walker comes back and uh, is is can get healthy again. Um, one guy that's kind of really flown under the radar that's I think had a a, a very solid freshman year off the bench, and that's Chandler Lawson. I mean mm-hmm. he was. He was out on the court in the final moments at Utah, uh, helping Oregon win this game. You know, he's averaging five points. He's averaging four rebounds a game. He's playing about, you know, 20 minutes a game. But I just feel like watching him play, his game continues to get better week in and week out. And the more, the more and more he plays, it wouldn't surprise me if by March, he's a guy that, that's really pushing to start. And that's what's so good about this team is they've got so many guys that can do a lot of different things, that their depth is awesome. And when you have the depth that they have, and if everyone buys in with the understanding of, you know, eight or nine guys are going to play, and each week it's going to be dependent upon who practices the best, plays, you're going to have a really, really good team. And I'll offer, I know it wasn't, asked about, but I do know that we have listeners that are that are also really into the women's basketball program, and it makes sense given how awesome they've been. In the first two home games, we should mention for those that are unaware. I mean, they they almost had sellouts, 11,000 average for, for the two games at home to open Pac-12 play, and I know they've already sold out the Civil War on, on January 24th, so there is a ton of interest there and a ton of support, and the fan support's been awesome to be at um, when you're at those games. But I, I can't wait from this weekend. Really impressed with the bench. I wrote about it on the site. If you can go check it out on DuckTerritory.com. Um, I don't think that there's – it's pretty clear who's going to be Oregon's starting lineup. I don't think there's really any debate there. I think if you were going to make a move, maybe you'd remove Aaron Bowley, and she comes off the bench as a sharpshooter. But she's a veteran, and, and she's been such a key part of this team for two years, and I just don't see them doing that um, you know, to replace her with maybe a freshman or, or a Taylor Chavez. But I do think, you know, 
Oregon has a luxury this year that they didn't have last year where you go to that bench and there were times in the Colorado and the Utah games this weekend where the fourth quarter was basically all reserve players mixed in with a starter here or there for a minute or two. Um, I was really, really impressed with, with how those players performed. I thought Jack Shelley and uh, Holly Winterburn. I also already mentioned Chavez. I thought Lydia Giomi, she's really made some strides. I mean, she was kind of an afterthought last year. You didn't. You weren't real confident in what you were getting from her, but she's become very reliable catching the ball around the basket and finishing it. Um, she's a, obviously got some great length there in terms of defending the rim at the other side, and she's not a great rebounder, but she gets the job done. Um, I think her, 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 to me, Jomi is going to be one of the more critical players come tournament time just because, because Sedona Prince is not eligible and because Niara Sabali can't get healthy with her knee. They really need another big body, and there's going to be times this year where Ruthie Hebert is either in foul trouble or, uh, or or they need two bigs on the court, and I think her ability to develop will be will be pretty pivotal there. But I also think, I mean, I was looking through the box scores from last year's Pac-12 tournament and NCAA tournament, and Sabrina Inescu, like, basically didn't take a break at all in any of the games that were competitive. Like, she played 40 minutes, 45 minutes in an overtime game. Um, they're, they have a luxury now with, with Shelly and Winterburn and also Chavez where she can come off and play 36 minutes, 34 minutes in a really competitive Pac-12 game against like Oregon State or Stanford or UCLA when they come to town or even this weekend when they go and they play at Arizona who's unbeaten. Um, they have the luxury now of, of rotating some players. So while it's not like the Oregon men's team where, where you're kind of still trying to figure out what the starting lineup is or what the rotation looks like, I just think on the women's side, you're really excited by the fact that you have some options to give some players some breaks. Cause like, you look at the, it's pretty crazy. You look at this weekend and I think Ruthie Hebert played a combined like 39 minutes in two games and scored like 40 points. So, um, you know, they, she played, I think she played 17 minutes on Friday against Colorado and scored 21 points. So, um, the depth that they have and the ability to give these players some rests, I think are going to be really pivotal going forward. Um, and, and again, if you have not been following these basketball programs, this is the time to start it because we, you know, the men host Arizona and Arizona State this weekend. That's, those are going to be great games. And then the Oregon women go on the road and I still think they'll be pretty dominant, um, especially against Arizona State. But that Arizona game, um, again, that could it's be a top really 25 fun. matchup. It's a top 25 matchup. And Ari McDonald is a really, really good player. So that's going to be, a, I think, a really fun game if, if you're a women's basketball fan. Well, I, real quick about the women. I was yeah. watching one of the broadcasts and Correct me if I'm wrong if, if they were correct or not, but one of the commenters said, uh, I think it was Elise Woodyard, uh, who does really good work for the Pac-12 Network. She brought up the fact that Oregon's depth is so insane that they have six players that have scored 25 or more points in their career yeah. at Oregon this season. Like, that's, tr- that's true. Like, like, that's just nuts. Like, you, you literally, not any night, you go into playing Oregon and go, okay, who's going to be the person that's going to score 25 on us tonight? Is it Sabrina? Is it Ruthie? Is it Bully? Is it Mignon Moore? Uh, is it Taylor Chavez? Is, is it, uh, who, who is going, is it Satu Savali? Is, I mean, the list is just insane of, you know, the, the talent that they have. And what I think is really impressive is, yeah, the, the competition hasn't been great the last two teams that they've played, Colorado and Utah. Um, although Colorado was undefeated before they played Oregon. They were. Uh, both games in the fourth quarter, Oregon played their second unit against the first unit of whoever they were playing. And Oregon continued to pull away. Like, they're that that's how talented the second group is, is that these girls would probably be, be – 
starting for a couple Pac-12 teams or probably a good chunk of them if they were just not at Oregon. Well, I, one of the things that I, I don't know if I tweeted this or if I just said this to somebody after the game, but I, I feel pretty confident that that, you, that that Colorado team, which again, I think they were 12 and 0 or 13 and 0 coming into that game. If, or, if you take Oregon's second five and you played against that Colorado starting five, I'm not so sure Oregon doesn't have the better team and doesn't win that game. Um, and that just speaks to the depth of, of this team. And, you know, this team has had a ton of success right now and I'm pulling up the stats here because you, you were running through 25 point per game scores. I don't think Sabrina, Sabrina hasn't done it this year. Her big game is 21 points. So, <laughs> uh, you know, she, she's, she's been kind of comfortable letting other players have their moments this year. And I think you're going to see her probably have some really big games once you get further into conference play. But, um, we still, she's only averaging 15 and a half points right now. Um, and that again, I think speaks to the depth of this team where you have, like you said, some of these players off the bench who are just capable of getting buckets. And that Colorado game was just super fun to watch from that perspective of like, Oh, here's Jazz Shelley or Shelley and Holly Winterburn and Taylor Chavez running the show, and oh, they're just dominating Colorado's like second unit or some of their starters, um, you know, with the game totally, totally um, out of reach. All right, I think that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions as always. We really appreciate that. Uh, stick with us. We'll do another one, another podcast this week on Friday. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get back in, we've gotten back into our regular scheduled three days a week podcast. I know a lot of people have messaged us over the last couple of weeks of why aren't there more podcasts? Where have the podcast been? But holidays are done. Eric's back from vacation. Uh, we're back into the groove of things. So, uh, you can get back to your regular scheduled programming of three podcasts per week. So, Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Brame, thanks for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.